This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. I see the stanzas rise around me, verse upon verse, far and near, like the mountains from a Giacachuk. Henry David Thoreau. A Giacachuk loosely translates as Home of the Great Spirit. It's a name given by Native Americans. Today, most of us know it as Mount Washington. It's part of the presidential traverse in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At 6,288 feet, it's the highest peak in the Northeast. Several storm tracks combine at its summit, creating some of the world's worst weather. That mountain is an important part of our identity here in the Granite State. It is unwise, Thoreau wrote, for one to ramble over these mountains at any time, unless he is prepared to move with as much certainty as if he were solving a geometrical problem. Hiking mountains is an exercise in risk management. Ty Gagney is the CEO of Primex, the New Hampshire Public Risk Management Exchange. He's also a certified wilderness first responder and the author of two books on winter climbing accidents in the White Mountains, Where You'll Find Me and The Last Traverse. He's also the author of a popular essay, Emotional Rescue. Reducing risk is his career. Ty, as the CEO of Primex, you help local governments mitigate risk. What are some of the lessons you've learned in your professional life? What I love about this job, our mission, and the people I work with and, and that we work for is that every day there's something different. Risk is complex. It evolves. And no one day is the same. So our staff has been incredibly resilient over the past 20 or so months with the uncertainty of the pandemic. And we've been in continuity of operations mode for that time. And um, so I think the lessons are just, um, they're so plentiful. And I think if you're just open to learning, which I'm, I'm a naturally curious person, they're there. We try to not be reactive. We, obviously, we do react to situations as they're happening out in the membership. But we really focus a lot of our energy on, on proactive action um, in an effort to prevent things from going wrong for our members. Your two books explore two separate climbing accidents in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, one of them in 2008 along Franconia Ridge, the other in 2015 along the Presidential Range. Out of all of the deaths of hikers in the White Mountains, why did you choose those two stories to write books about? For the first book, Where You'll Find Me, that was the result of a presentation that I had put together for work. Uh, We do an annual risk management summit every year for our members And in uh, 2015, I was slated to present that year, and I wanted to take something I was passionate about, which is mountaineering. I followed accidents in the White Mountains, as many people do uh, for years, and just wanted to take a non-judgmental look at accidents and why they happen and how we can learn from those and apply them to day to day, uh, whether at work or just going about our personal lives. Because I think the things that happen in the mountain, it's just, it's, kind of the human condition amplified at 4,000, 5,000 feet. And so it was never really my intention to write the first book. It just evolved over time the more I was asked to speak about that that accident. Uh, And then the second book was, I think, also 
really a, a direct connection for me because um, the week before the accident that I that I write about in the second book, The Last Traverse, I had done a traverse of the same range and had made a series of decisions that, um, you know, I was fortunate to get off of that ridge uh, unscathed with the exception of, a you know, a highly bruised ego. So um, I think the first book and then the second book, because of that connection, I had that personal experience followed. When I hiked Mount Washington, it was the first hike I had ever done in the Whites. And looking back, I packed some supplies. I didn't pack everything that I should have packed. And it was a beautiful summer day. The weather was absolutely perfect. But that gave me a false sense of security when I was out there. I didn't get into any trouble. But what always will stick with me is just how foolish I was that I wasn't better prepared. And I'm a meteorologist. You're a risk manager. We probably did know better, but didn't do better on some of our first hikes. And I always think about that sign, too, that I saw as you're leaving the forested part and you're reaching the alpine zone. It says, the area ahead has the worst weather in America. Many have died there from exposure, even in the summer. And here I am in the summer reading that. And it says, turn back now in bold letters if the weather is bad. That really made me think that the important point there, one of them, is we just can't be too proud to turn back. So that sort of gets me to the topic of heuristics. And you seem to be very well versed in that approach to risk management. So what are some of those heuristic traps that we need to avoid and how do we avoid them? Yes. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why you and I walk by the yellow sign, whether it's in the mountains or... Um, you know, sending a text while driving, or there's just a whole host of different things that we do. And if nothing bad happens, we can normalize that. But one of the things I spend a lot of time talking with groups about are heuristics, those mental shortcuts that we take. Uh, because it, if our brain is allowed to do so, it's going to take that path of least resistance uh, throughout the course of the day, especially with things that are familiar to us, like um, that morning commute to work, that evening commute from work to home, um, all of those things that we do that feel routine to us. And in the mountains, it's no different. So just a couple of examples, the, you know, the planning fallacy. This is when we're putting together a plan or building an itinerary or a project, and we'll often do so looking through the most positive lens that we can. And so we'll underestimate uh, the amount of time uh, the amount of money or the amount of energy that's going to be required to complete it will overestimate our ability to complete the task. Um, and if we're part of a pair or a team, we can overestimate the ability of the people that we're with. Um, in relation to that, we can anchor to that plan. So every decision that we make while we're underway is in support of the original plan, even if it appears that that plan is starting to uh, crack. Um, if people around us starting to see things are going wrong, we'll, we'll just hold to that plan because we put that together and um, our ego wants, you know, wants to keep us on the same path and, and not, maybe not admit that uh, things aren't going well. Um, the, the acceptance heuristic, I think this came into play for me on Franconia Ridge in 2008 during my experience where I was with a group of people I didn't know. Um, and I wanted to be accepted into the group. And even though 
I was tired and dehydrated. I kept going. I didn't speak up because I just didn't, I, I wanted to be accepted by them. Uh, expert halo when we're part of a team and we, we perceive an authority figure or somebody with power or a social relationship within the group we're in that we're not part of. And even though we're uncomfortable or we start to see things go wrong, we don't speak up uh, because we don't want to be marginalized or criticized or isolated within the team uh, or removed from the group altogether. And that, again, that happens out on hikes and it happens in, in an office environment. So there's a whole host of different things that that can lead us into trouble. And we, again, we don't really recognize it's happening to us because we're not necessarily paying that close attention to it. You talk about the importance of situational awareness. Could you explain that in more detail? We've gotten very good at, at um, mastering distraction. You know, I think we're constantly getting notifications on a phone or uh, we're multitasking. It's it's, it can be really challenging to be present. Uh, and the thing with situational awareness is it's, it's really having a grasp of what's going on around us. If we, if we think about it as a system consisting of people, um, physical objects, in the case of um, the mountains, the weather, or even if we're driving or whatever we happen to be doing. But it's really continuously taking an inventory uh, of self of the people around us, uh, of the environment that we're operating in, and asking ourselves, you know, what's happening? Are, are there changes taking place? Do I anticipate the potential for something to change? Am I prepared for that? Uh, but again, it just it requires a level of you know personal discipline to to stop uh, and again take take note and take inventory and and then adjust your plan if if necessary. Not being on autopilot. Right. What's dysfunctional momentum? It's work that was done out of MIT, and they, they looked at wildland firefighting and um, how wildland firefighting is addressed and that it's really difficult to get ahead of. And when there were some factors involved in identifying dysfunctional momentum, generally when we think of momentum, it's looked at as a positive uh, we we attach that many times to um, professional sporting events when one team seems to have everything going right for them, um, and we'll label it that. But momentum can turn in the other direction when we're action oriented, when we're so focused on the goal or the task ahead of us, we're on autopilot. We're not paying attention to those changes around us. Inflexible planning. We have a plan. Um, and even though, again, all indications are that it needs to be modified or adjusted, we just hold to it. Uh, the ripple effect. One thing starts to go wrong, and if it's not addressed, uh, it will spill over into other areas. And now we, we have multiple fires, uh, metaphorically, that we, that we have to deal with. Um, so one of the ways to keep momentum in check um, is through situated humility, no matter how many times... I've done a particular task uh, that I've, the experiences I have or the tenure in an organization I have, um, that each and every experience that I have, there's something there that's different and that I really need to be open to uh, changes. I need to be open to how I might be different in this current situation or the people that are around me or whatever I'm interacting with. And also just creating interruptions um, or what we might call strategic pauses that even though we're underway and even if things seem like they're going well, 
uh, we just take a time out and we just reassess. Again, I, I use that term taking inventory. But the next time, you know, I think if you're in a meeting and no one, we just can't seem to reach a decision, it's really just taking 10 minutes, leaving the room, uh, getting some distance from the issue, coming back to it. And, you know, oftentimes we'll, a solution will present itself outside of that, that environment. So. In my experience, it seems like major accidents are usually the result of a series of smaller errors, not typically one big defining event. Do you find that that's typically the case too? Yeah, I do. I think if we look at if we look back, if we look at at the larger story, you can see over time, just like you said, the series of small events that um, led up to this this um, failure. Uh, or accident that, and you just start to connect those dots. Easier to do with hindsight, uh, but I think the lessons are in those dots, and that's where I I like to spend a lot of time is focusing on the why, uh, not on the judgment, uh, but really what what can we learn from it? Because we're all susceptible to it um, in anything that we do. So that's where those pauses and those intentional resets help you. They do, they do. When we read about accidents, I think some of us are quick to pick apart what went wrong when we're watching something on the news or looking at the newspaper. And we say to ourselves, we would have been better prepared in that situation, or we wouldn't have even taken that risk on ourselves. And those two hikers who died in the stories that you wrote were not new to hiking. They were also generally prepared as hikers. Could you speak to that tendency among us armchair experts to look at those kinds of situations and dismiss them in some ways? Sure. I, I think there's various reasons why we do that. When we, when we criticize uh, people, I think we could, that in some way maybe makes us feel ourselves feel better, that we don't really have to do the work uh, on our own story. Because I, and I, as I tell groups, we all have something or a series of somethings in our life story where we did something with the best of intentions and things got away from us uh, and there was trouble. We're human. Right. Absolutely. And I think we just sometimes have to remind ourselves about that because when we judge, um, we distance ourselves from our, those moments in our own lives that I talk about. But I also think when we, when we judge, we stop learning. We're not open to that additional information and perspective that might help us better understand why this happened and how can I apply those lessons to my own life and and whether it's personally or professionally. Hypothermia was a huge factor in both of your books. I didn't realize, though, that one of the first regions of your body to be negatively impacted by hypothermia is the part of our brain that makes decisions. Could you explain how hypothermia degrades our ability Yes. So the really the executive function of our brains, the frontal cortex, that's where rational, methodical thinking around complex tasks takes place. And when we get cold, and it's, it's very subtle, uh, it's, it's known as the silent killer in the backcountry. And what happens is as, as small as a one and a half degree drop in core body temperature, uh, we start to have um, effects cognitively. So as the body gets colder and blood is returning from the outer uh, extremities, like your arms and your legs, which has less insulation than our core, 
it arrives at the heart. It's cold. The heart doesn't like that. the brain sends out a message, uh, you know, we're going to warm this up. And our veins and our arteries, particularly in our outer extremities, constrict. It's called vasoconstriction. One of the first places that blood flow is affected is in the frontal cortex of the brain. So it is a really slow cognitive decline. We don't realize it's happening to us. Um, and it, it absolutely impairs our judgment. Uh, our ability to deal with problems, the, the, our ability to focus on self-care, like hydration, uh, eating, thermoregulation, you know, uh, mo- you know, managing our, our core body temperature. I know the numbness that I'd felt in the cold, but I didn't know that it was already a cognitive process degrading. It, 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 it was is. happening before I felt the numbness in my fingers, right? Right. I mean, that, it, that's, that's an absolutely a, a red flag. Shivering when outside is, is your body involuntarily trying to keep itself warm through involuntary exercise. And so there, there are some ways to pick up on it. But absolutely, that loss of dexterity that we feel, the numbness in our toes and our fingers, is, um, that, that's a strong indication that, that we need to modify you may have all the necessary supplies that you need when you're out in extreme cold, but those supplies don't always work, and your hands may not be able to use those supplies if they're impacted by the extreme cold. And what was interesting to me is one time I read a story about Colin O'Brady. He's an American, and he was down in Antarctica for nearly two months skiing across the continent. And part of his training ahead of that trip was submersing his hands in an ice bath and assembling Legos. And I never would have realized that should have been part of training, but it was for him, and it made perfect sense. And it makes even more sense now that you explain it. Yeah, and I've read Colin's book. I've followed him a little bit, and also Lewis Rudd, who uh, attempted to cross Antarctica uh, at the same time Colin did. And yeah, there are there are things that w- that's probably at the extreme, and I understand why why he does that. I also think um, for you and I uh, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, I think you know there's a lot of expertise at our our local outdoor retail outlets. There's a lot of um, experience and expertise within uh, the guide services that exist throughout the White Mountains. Um, and there's various workshops offered by the Appalachian Mountain Club and other um, retail outlets and climbing schools that teach you how to uh, thermoregulate, um, buying the appropriate uh, type of gear, knowing when and how to use it, I think is really important. Uh, just because we make that purchase doesn't now mean that we've um, achieved what we need to. It's there's practice that goes into that, as you mentioned, with what Colin was doing. It's not necessarily a suicide mission to go out in the winter, but there are certainly a lot of extra precautions you need to take and extra things you need to learn. Yes, and I, I think that's what, what draws me a lot to that um, activity in particular, is it, it is a different approach. You really have to be aware of what you're doing. You have to be you have to be well prepared in all four seasons. In the winter, there's a lower the margin for error is much thinner. I love cycling, I love skiing, I love hiking, but I think some people who aren't that familiar with hiking in the whites, especially in the summer, might imagine that you can just throw on a pair of trail shoes, pack a couple of water bottles and a smartphone, and head out for the trail. 
And I think some people are lulled into a false sense of security. Our mountains aren't as high as out west, um, but the terrain seems steeper. We don't have the switchbacks like they do out west, for example. And we don't always check the mountain forecast. And several weather systems can and do converge in these areas where you wrote those books. So what I'm wondering is people don't really seem to have an appreciation for just how dangerous it is up in the White Mountains. You know, 70 million people can travel within a day up here, and it may sound like a walk in the park in some ways, but it really isn't. I agree. You know, we have a a major interstate system that runs through Franconia Notch, major roadways that run through the other notches, such as Pinkham and Crawford, and highly accessible, but accessibility does not... um, mean safety uh they're they're unpredictable environments yes they're significantly lower in elevation than what you might find out west but uh as you mentioned the terrain is really challenging and we do have three weather systems that converge uh, particularly over the presidential range in mount washington but that weather will often get to the other areas of the white mountains first uh or right around the same time it can be just as uh difficult as what we find in the home of the world's worst weather at 6,000 feet on Mount Washington. We generally know that we need to be in good physical shape for an outdoor activity. But beyond that, before a hike, remind us what else is important. You mentioned checking the weather. I think the higher summits forecast through the Mount Washington Observatory is a critical tool, uh, understanding what it means, um, and also recognizing that you're not going to get specific timing around the arrival of weather. It's just a general um, guideline that, you know, the observatory really wants you to think about your itinerary. uh, And because if they give you a specific time, you're going to apply that to your itinerary and the weather could arrive much earlier than what's uh, forecasted. Packing the 10 essentials, you can find the list of the 10 essentials uh, at New Hampshire Hike Safe uh, on their website. Hikesafe.com, Hot yes. Safe. Yep. Uh, I, also, I have them listed in the back of, in the index of the last traverse as well. Leaving an itinerary with someone, and I would go so far as to say leave an itinerary with two people who do not live together. Always have that additional um, contingency plan. Where you're going, what time you're leaving, uh, where you park your car, planning to park your vehicle, um, who you might be going with. And again, duplicate that and, you know, leave that with, with somebody that you live with. And if, if not, again, leave it with two people that don't live together. Just assume that that one person could potentially forget that you're out there. What struck me with those two stories that you told was the weather, the timing of the weather. They would have been fine, but for the timing of the weather. They were generally aware of the approaching weather, but not in the right place at the right time. They didn't get back in time. Yeah, I think in both cases, they were situations where um, how they interpreted the forecast and how it actually lined up that day were were different. And tragic events in both cases. uh, And really just almost got to the point too far beyond that that line of um, turning around to to really be able to sell what I consider self-rescue. It was absolutely horrifying, both of those stories, the final hours, the final moments that you describe in your books. 
Yeah, and I think in the, particularly in the case of the last traverse, um, James Osborne, who survived, having his voice and his perspective and his trust to share that ordeal that he had with his close friend, Fred, um, I think just added added a weight to the story that, that maybe wasn't there with the first book because you know, Kate was alone uh, and a lot of what I was going on was based on the data extracted from uh, her handheld GPS unit and then the weather data from the observatory. Not her first-hand account. Right. In James' situation, though, I don't think I've ever read a story about a guy who survived by a margin that thin out in the cold. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an... It's an amazing survival story, and uh, I think about this often. I, I am so grateful to be the one to have shared it in this way. He, James, r- is still the coldest person, um, dry at, uh, with a dry land hypothermia case to ever be fully revived in the Northeast. Yeah, He's, what was he? Seventy six degrees is core temperature. Yep, and one of the coldest in the in the United States. There, are, there have been colder dry land hypothermia patients who've been fully revived but he's it's a short list and he's he's there so it's remarkable he lost part of himself he did physically yeah and he he lost his friend he did he lost a tremendous amount but also one of the most positive optimistic and resilient people i've had the the honor to meet what did you take away from speaking with him what did you learn about him what's he like he's a happy person he has really good perspective on what happened, who he was when it happened. We all have responsibility when, whenever we're out um, on an adventure like that. And I think just the process that he went through, uh, not only his physical recovery, but his emotional recovery uh, and, and his openness about that. Um, again, I just, uh, I'm so glad to know him uh, and he's doing really remarkable things. Now he volunteers at the adaptive ski program at Mount Sunapee. Uh, Here where, in New Hampshire. Yeah, where he, they taught him to, uh, to get back on skis once he, once he got his prosthetic because he lost his right leg below his knee. Uh, and he also does a lot of charity uh, cycling, long-distance cycling rides throughout the country in support of adaptive athletes. Both of those stories were in full conditions, right? Yes. I mean, I've driven through blizzards because I work at the airport and I have to go to work, but I've never hiked in these whiteout conditions. I just can't imagine how hard it is from a spatial standpoint to even know where to go and which way is up and left and right and down. Yeah, I think as you said, uh, I think most people can relate to that loss of spatial awareness in driving into a whiteout or type of, of a squall when we're driving. So I, I would go with that. And I think what differentiates that when we're in the mountains is we're in our car. There's some degree of protection there at some level. Yeah, although, you've got that metal cage. Yeah, except we're, we're always waiting for something to come out of the, the blinding snow to hit us. But in the mountains, it's it's remote. And we're so far from that, what we perceive as being safety, which is the parking lot and the car that we left when we started. Right. And, and so I think there's just something about that, that it's an additional, probably several layers of, of fear that are added onto it when you're out there, um, 
whether you're alone or you're with somebody and you know how far away you are uh, from help or, or from the safety of treeline. In your first book, you examine the last hike of Kate, and she set out alone on a winter hike in 2015 along the presidential range. She was experienced. Her career, in some ways, is a little bit like yours. She quantified risk, albeit in the finance and banking industries, and you wrote that she had already climbed four of the seven summits, which are the highest peaks on each of the seven continents. So someone who is quite familiar with the outdoors, hiking, climbing, mountaineering. But she got into trouble too, and at one point during her hike, she activated that personal locator beacon that she had with her. When she activated that beacon, do you think she believed she would die on that hike? Well, that's... That's a really good question and a challenging one to answer because, again, we don't have a first-person account. All I can say to that is, having talked to the to people who know her, um, and as Charlie, her husband, had indicated to uh, New Hampshire Fishing Game, who had uh, responsibility for the search and rescue operation, uh, that if she had activated the beacon, it was she knew it was a life or death situation because given who she was as a person, he said she would have done whatever she possibly could to have gotten herself out of the situation that she got herself into self rescue, self rescue and just very independent, strong person. Um, and, and wouldn't have wanted, uh, to have, uh, burdened people with having to come help her. Uh, and then in, in terms of the, the book is titled where you'll find me. And that book, that title came from a conversation I was having with a member of a search and rescue team in the North Country who was not involved in the rescue, but who followed this very closely. And, you know, he said, um, based on everything he had read about Kate, everything he knew about her, that when she activated the beacon, it, it, it wasn't, um, you know, please come help me. It was that she knew that it was the end and that she activated that beacon for her family uh, and for the rescue team that this is, you know, this is where you'll find me. And it just seemed so appropriate. Um, so sad. It is. It is. What it is. did she teach you? Her story? I understand the high drive part. I have those traits personally, have learned to manage them over time through just getting older and having experiences and having some perspective. You know, I think in, in some ways, my own experience in 2008 on Franconia Ridge there was there was there was ego involved in that and again the acceptance piece but also the drive to look I'm not I'm not quitting and I'm just going to keep going and I do think at some level drive is what helped me get across the ridge line when I just wanted to do nothing more than just stop walking it's good to a point yep it is and but I, do we know that point when right. we're in it yeah and I think I think there's value in pushing yourself in a way that teaches you how to how to suffer through those kinds of things um, and work through it. I think a lot of us have relied on those traits and skills over the past 20 months with uh, the pandemic. Some degree of risk-taking is important. We do have to know where that line is because the further beyond it we go, the harder it is to extract ourselves from the situation that we might find ourselves in. But that we do need to get outside of our comfort zone. We do need to, to, to stretch and because that's where the growth happens. That's where, right. 
the good stuff takes place and we develop wisdom and experience and her whole life, um, particularly when she arrived in the United States at 20 years old until tragically she lost her life at 32, was she was outside of her comfort zone a lot and she was really successful at it. And, and she was quite comfortable yeah, in that space yeah, for the most part. She saw real value in in she saw growth. She saw that's she wanted to get better at things. She wanted to have new experiences. She wanted to see different places. And and in this case, on in February 2015, it just it got away from her uh, to a so far away that that she could not get out of it. Nor could the the rescuers that were called to help her. They couldn't get to her either. So um, I think there's a lot to be learned from her, who she was as a person her experiences and, and those of the rescuers that that go into harm's way to, to try to help us. I think it's important to point out in these stories that we're not looking to judge people and criticize them. We're looking to learn from them. Because we've all been there, like you said, in one way or another. Maybe not to that degree, that, but still. I agree. And I again, I people, I've talked to thousands, you know, hundreds of groups, thousands of people over the course of the six years since I started doing that initial training session. And you can see when, when I, one of the things I do is I put the weather forecast for, for both of these stories up. You can see judgment and I understand it. You can see it on people's faces or the way they Yeah, what are you doing going seat. out in a winter storm? Uh, and, I, and I understand it and I try to walk them through why? Um, yeah, let's continue to take in information and process it rather than just going right to conclusion. Because again, I think we stop learning. Um, but I, I try to tell people, though you may not agree with what they, what, what Kate did in this case, or um, what Fred and James were doing, or anybody else that gets into trouble. What, what are the things that we can take away? Because there are traits in all of them that I think can help us you know, to live more fulfilling and enriching lives. And, um, and that is getting out and doing things that give you an opportunity to learn and to build confidence. Um, but again, that self-awareness piece, what is, where's my technical competency? Where does that line end? Um, and how do I continue to, to push that line further away from me by continuing to gain experience and, and growth? I think with myself, with cycling, with skiing, with hiking, it is that level of risk that makes it exciting for me and makes me want to keep doing that sport and getting better at it. And if there wasn't that level of risk and if there wasn't the speed with cycling, the speed with skiing, I don't think I'd like it as much. Yeah, and I, to your point, I, there's absent complete information, there's uncertainty or risk. And how many things in life that we do have do we have absolute information about? So, how do you manage when you when you go out on your bike? You you wear a helmet. You might have a blinking light for traffic. Uh, you and I know the routes to go and not to go on because uh, and the times of day. And we're managing risk. It's just we don't often think about it. We've all been managing it for. Uh, almost two years now, every time you don a mask um, or distance, um, when you, for those that chose to get vaccinated, that's those are risk management techniques, except we just don't necessarily look at it that way or really take time to, to think about how much we actually do it. The last thing I'd like to bring up is 
the role of the Civil Air Patrol and the New Hampshire Army National Guard, their search and rescue team. You speak about them in your books, and that Franconia Ridge rescue you'd written was one of the most challenging missions ever executed in the White Mountains. The Black Hawk pilot said it was harder for him than military missions he had done prior to that mountain rescue. You know, hovering over the mountain in a position for over 10 minutes in a full condition winter storm, the winds, the visibility, the extreme cold, the icy helicopter blades, and you yourself, you're a certified wilderness first responder. So you have some of those same skills that some of the rescue teams have. And I was just really struck by how selfless these people are and how lacking in judgment they are of the people they are going to rescue. I mean, they're going out in the same exact harsh conditions and rescuing someone, and often without pay. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up, uh, because in New Hampshire, it's it's quite unique. New Hampshire Fish and Game has oversight of inland search and rescue, but is augmented by volunteer teams uh, that, as you, meant, as you said, they, they respond 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, uh, unpaid, And they go out uh, in service of others, uh, and they do so because they also recognize that there's a very fine line between them and the people they're going out to help. There have been rescuers who have been out recreating themselves who have needed to be rescued. Um, So there's a tremendous amount of humility within the ground teams, um, consisting of New Hampshire Fishing Game and the volunteer teams, Uh, and also with the air crews. I learned so much from the air crews in terms of uh, how they manage risk because aviation risk management, uh, there's a lot to learn from that. And a lot of that has come from hard lessons learned through aviation accidents. And I had the really the honor of, um, of going to the Eastern army aviation training site in Pennsylvania with the crew chief of the Blackhawk and spent almost two hours in a Blackhawk simulator with him and an expert pilot where they replicated the conditions uh, of that mission. And I would, I would not attest that it was anywhere near what they experienced, but to just have a small sense of what it took, not only for the pilot, but for the co-pilot and the two crew chiefs in the back to successfully and safely get that helicopter um, to the position that they put it in on the summit of Little Haystack uh, in a ground blizzard with really high winds in total darkness, uh, using only their infrared goggles um, to to save James and then to extract the the rescuers um, from the mountaintop um, and then Fred tragically uh, is it 's amazing and as you mentioned it 's the first time and it 's the only time in the state 's history where a Black Hawk helicopter has landed at night. Um, in a winter storm on a summit of the White Mountains. Uh, hadn't happened before, hasn't happened since. It just blows my mind that they even went. It was that bad. Yeah, and it was such a collective decision. There's a, you know, in the military, as in any emergency response organization, there's rank, there's title, uh, there's authority, there's power. And in, I think there's so much to learn from the ground teams and the air teams because. E- even though there's that rank structure, decision-making is by consensus. Every, each individual is empowered to contribute to decision-making. If any one person 
regardless of rank or tenure or experience is uncomfortable. It's, it's reassessed without criticism, without judgment. Um, they can, they can essentially pull the plug, um, out on the trail and, and turn around and go back if, if need be, because rescuer safety is absolutely paramount. And I think we show our appreciation by being prepared and learning what we can about the sport we're about to undertake. Yeah, I agree. The best thing we can do for our volunteer teams and our fishing game and and uh, air air teams is is to be prepared to have a high degree. We talked about the 10 essentials. I think there's an 11th one. And I think it's self-awareness who we are, knowing who we are when we present at the trailhead what our limitations yeah, are and how our how who we are lines up with what we are setting out to do thank you again thank you follow diary of a nation on facebook instagram and twitter do you like what you hear take a moment to rate and review diary of a nation on apple podcasts <laughs>